This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have NBC's War Telescope, as it aired on May 29, 1943. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. It was hosted by war correspondent Morgan Beatty. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Each Saturday at this same time, the National Broadcasting Company presents Morgan Beatty's War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. Morgan Beatty is NBC's veteran war reporter in the British capital. And so for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Morgan Beatty looking at the 195th week of war through the War Telescope. This was the week of decision. Russia, China, Britain, and our own United States reached the crossroads of war and confirmed their determination to walk down the dangerous highway together for better or for worse. A single sentence of decision, 22 words, comes to us from President Roosevelt after the United Nations have won two major victories at Stalingrad and in Tunisia. We don't like to remind ourselves, but it is a fact, that the enemy has won more and greater military victories. Three years ago today, the big and little boats of Englishmen began to shuttle back and forth across the channel bringing back a pitiful burden of war from Dunkirk. Above these plain Englishmen, the RAF fighters roared in protection. College men, professional airmen, titled youth, proved that you can't win without local mastery of the air. And spitfire and hurricane became household words. Thus it was that hundreds of thousands were rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk instead of the few. The plain people of Britain managed a miracle of heroism. But it was a defeat. The Germans had slammed shut the door on Europe. All that followed in France and the Balkans was merely the cleanup, confirmation. So it was that the people of Britain learned that disaster is born out of mistakes of the past, blunders that one by one expose the heart of an empire to the guns of the enemy. Just about then, we Americans began to stir uneasily. Early in June 1940, Congress took up a vague new defense bill designed to raise a few hundred more million dollars for ships and guns. The president asked for the right to call out the National Guard, to train the youth of America for service in industry and in the Army and Navy and Air Force. Wendell Wilkie, then a candidate for president, urged all possible help for the Allies short of troops. He called Britain and France America's first line of defense, 
Even Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan, often labeled isolationist, advocated all possible aid to the Allies. We now know how puny were our plans then, how low our sights. We know now that modern war is not only a ghastly business, but a big business, bigger than any big business ever known. But even in 1941 in Britain, and yes, in America, there were men who understood the art of modern war, professional soldiers and sailors and airmen, for the most part, who knew what combined operations meant, who knew about tank warfare and air cover. But these men were pitifully few. We needed millions. How is it then that in two short years or three, we've created a gigantic war corporation, United Nations Incorporated? How is it that we've convinced the enemy at last that his head start has not guaranteed victory? How is it that the enemy's favorite weapon, the airplane, is now our weapon? And what gives us our steady confidence within three short years of Dunkirk? First and foremost, it's our hard professional corps of soldiers, the few who had spent their lives in the profession so many of us despise. You run into these men over here in England, Poles, Czechs, Englishmen, Americans, and you can spot them a block away. Such men, for example, is Colonel Frank S. Ross, the transportation genius of the United States Army in this theater. It's a man like Colonel Ross who understands the complexities of war transport, who tells you that the trouble with the cargo is that it can't talk back when you set it down in the wrong place. But there weren't enough of these hard-boiled professionals in the British and American armies. Some weeks ago, a famous neutral diplomat here in London told me he didn't think too much of Allied chances in North Africa, even though he hoped for our success. The German officers, all of them are professionals, he said. Yours are businessmen with gold-rimmed glasses. They can't learn the art of war overnight. But thank heaven this diplomat had misjudged our businessmen and engineers and scientists. But perhaps you too would like some proof, would prefer a closer look to see how an American civilian fits his uniform under the watchful eye of the professional few. Colonel Sidney H. Bingham of New York, USA, is one of these men, and he's right here in London. He's typical of most commuters, even to gold-rimmed glasses. He's chief of military railways for our army in the European theater. But we must admit that Sid Bingham's got the jump on most of us. All his life, he's made trouble his business. In his youth, he was a master engineer in the First World War in France. Then he plunged into an engineering career with the New York subway system. Ultimately, he became the line's troubleshooting ace. It was Sid Bingham in peacetime who sat under the underground control center in Grand Central Station waiting for trouble. And when trouble came, it was Sid Bingham who told everybody what to do and how to do it. Sid Bingham has acquired a sixth sense about trouble. Three years before this war started, he convinced his wife and his adolescent son that the younger Bingham should abandon his plans to study peacetime engineering and go to a military school, the Citadel, in Charleston, South Carolina. The lad ranks high in his class, by the way, and he graduates next year. But when war came, the elder Bingham joined up again, and our professional soldiers sent him to the European Theater of Operations, as we've said, as chief of military railways. You see, the British haven't got the manpower to handle all our freight and troop movements as well as their own. So Sid Bingham runs our trains. Then there are other little tasks, such as getting together the trains that one day will run over the tracks of European lines. We can expect the enemy, you know, to destroy most of these lines, so we're planning skeleton railway systems to carry the burden of supply for our own armies and food for the people of Europe. For this service, Sid Bingham has developed what he calls the breakdown lorry. It's a 10-ton truck designed to take the place of a railroad wrecker train in emergency. It'll run on the roughest highways, in between blown-up sections of railroads. It's compact, Pullman-style, 
And the equipment is designed in small packages so that two men can have it if necessary. And the Bingham lorry, as they call it in Africa, can do anything a big work train can do except lift an engine back on the track. The British Army has adopted the lorry as standard equipment. Then there's that matter of the ambulance trains. The British had bitter experience with them in France before Dunkirk. They learned, for example, that ambulance trains froze up in cold weather when the engine was disconnected. They were not satisfied with train design either. They were wasting space wounded soldiers could be using. Our own army doctors pooled facilities with the British, and they wanted improvements too. Better sterilization, more toilets, better facilities generally on ambulance trains. But how to get them, that was the question. Colonel Frank Ross said it was easy, yet said Bingham. But what does he know about hospital service and medicine, came back the query. Nothing at all was the bland reply, but Sid Bingham can perform miracles with anything that runs on wheels. So they put him to work, and in no time at all, he was drawing doodads on his desk. The old ambulance trains had two kitchens, one for the train staff and a liquid diet kitchen for the wounded. Sid Bingham remembered one night eight years ago in peacetime. His wife was, still is, by the way, chief assistant to the president of Trask in New York restaurant chain. She needed a compact cooking range for special diets. Women were dieting a lot in those days, too. But this range had to pack into a small space. So eight years ago, Engineer Bingham sat down and designed a stove to cook liquid diets on top and roasts underneath. And it all came back to Colonel Bingham at his London desk. A single six-hole range would solve the feeding problem on the ambulance train. And today, all standard British-American hospital trains have a single kitchen. The hospital trains operating in invasion countries, therefore, will be able to take care of more wounded men. Then Sid Bingham ringed up a diesel boiler commonly used in British laundries. He spotted a car position for this laundry contraption, and now Allied ambulance trains have easy, steady heat, engine or no engine. And Sid Bingham engineered shower baths into ambulance trains without losing space. He added a mechanical sterilizer to every car to prevent the possible spread of infection. Fourteen of these ambulance trains are now ready to run on the rails of Europe, and there'll be twice that many ready in a shorter time than you'd think. But still, Colonel Sid Bingham was not satisfied. The space loss to make way for long stretcher poles worried him. So he... But here he is, Colonel Sidney H. Bingham, to tell us for the first time about one of the truly great discoveries of modern warfare. A simple but revolutionary step forward with untold values for peacetime, too. Colonel Bingham, won't you tell us about it? Well, Morgan, it's too simple. Now, Colonel. All right, you have invented the first collapsible stretcher, an American gadget that may revolutionize the handling of wounded men and save 40% in medical personnel. Now, how did it all happen, sir? I noticed the loss of space on ambulance trains, space left to make way for long stretcher poles. The doctors assured me there was seldom a compelling need for rigid poles, except for rare spinal cases. Collapsible tubing seemed to be the answer. The tubing could be telescoped within itself, and the stretcher could be carried to the battlefield. All done up in an accordion package, with a strap the same as we carry our gas mask. Then, our medical corps gave me reports from Africa. Tank crews were having trouble handling their wounded, getting them back into the dressing stations, because tanks carry no stretchers. And reports from Australia reveal that jungle brush interfered with the stretcher bearers. The poles tied down both hands, or else four men had to be used. This interfered with the comfort of wounded men. Then, take submarines and small ships. They can't manage room for heavy, rigid stretchers. Am I to understand, then, that nobody has successfully tackled this problem before in all the long history of warfare? That's right. So far as I know, the stretcher simply has not caught up 
with gadget warfare. So I try to design a stretcher adaptable for all kinds of modern warfare, for deserts and jungles, for oceans and the air. There are straps close to each end of the new stretcher. In an emergency, a single man can double it up and carry a wounded comrade. Two men make various kinds of pack saddles and carry the man through the jungle without losing the use of their hands. It, is, it can be inflated for comfort or to sustain a man in the water. A single man can carry a stretcher on the battlefield like a gas mask. It stows away in a plane or tank. The accordion stretcher, and nobody ever thought of it before. And it is, as you said, almost too simple for words. But where'd you get all these collapsible ideas for compact things, Colonel? From packing away people in the subway, I, I suppose. Oh, so you're the man responsible for sardining the New York public all these years. It's about time you turned out something from man's comfort. But now that you've invented all these things, that, that leaves you with nothing to do but run our railway trains over here. That only takes 23 hours a day. What about that idle hour, Colonel? Oh, kidding aside, Morgan, I am working on a new gadget. You see, the medical corps has a pub portable hospital now, but it's pretty complicated, a bit too complex for use. Close up under the guns of the front lines. I'm working on a sort of an ironing board type operating room. I don't know how that's going to turn out, though. I do, Colonel. It'll be about the size of a spectacles case, and the surgeons will carry it in on their breast pockets. It'll unfold into a male brother's operating room complete with nurses. Seriously, we ought to let the radio audience in on the rest of the story of Sid Bingham, Army Magician Extraordinary. You come by your inventive instincts honestly. Your great-grandfather was the famous William Headley of England, popularly known as the father of the modern locomotive. He's the man who proved that a smooth steel wheel would run on a smooth steel track. And you've been elected to full membership in the British Institution for Mechanical Engineers. The only American officer, incidentally, so honored. If the United States Army adopts your accordion stretcher, you will receive only $40 for the invention, standard army pay for such things, and will make it available free to all allied armies. If my friend, the worldwide or wise diplomat, would spend a little more time looking around him, discovering men like Colonel Bingham, he'd understand more about why the Axis folded in Tunisia when it did. He'd know why we were converting American businessmen into professional soldiers faster than it's ever been done before in history. And he'd know why President Roosevelt can put up together a 22-word report to us on decisions of strategy with complete confidence that the strategy will be carried out on schedule. As a matter of fact, thousands of men are learning the art of war more rapidly than Hitler ever dreamed that art could be mastered. And these men are improving on the technique of war Inventing devices useful in war, and most of them will be useful in peace, too. Like the Bingham lorry we've told you all about, and the Bingham accordion stretcher. Yes, my friend, the world-wise diplomat, would know better about things. And he'd know why Prime Minister Winston Churchill and the President, together with Stalin in the East, can write the ticket on war strategy and confidently expect admission to the grandstand of victory erected by none other than United Nations Incorporated. And now this is Morgan Beatty saying so long until next Saturday. You've been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by Morgan Beatty, NBC's veteran war observer in the British capital. Mr. Beatty is presented every Saturday at this same time, so be sure to tune in again a week from now. The program came to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.